I think it was a dark day in the history of the United States Senate. Sure is. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. You Oregonians should be proud of your senator today. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 92.9 FM WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii, on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950. KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the internets five days a week on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com, just trying to uh, not only make sense of it, but keep up with it today. Man alive, one of those days, one of these days that I had been, uh, frankly, fearing, uh, worrying about in the in the run-up to the election, warning people about, we're just about at that place. Uh, coming up, it is a dark day, as you heard John McCain say at the top of the show there. It is a dark day in the U.S. Senate, indeed. And I would add a dark day for the nation, frankly, with the Republicans' theft of the U.S. Supreme Court now nearly a fait accompli at this point, with the Republicans successfully invoking the nuclear option today in the U.S. Senate to kill the filibuster for U.S. Supreme Court nominations uh, in order to ram Donald Trump's nominee uh, for that, uh, for the seat left vacant by Antonin Scalia's death more than a year ago, for uh, that nuclear option killing the filibuster uh, to push that nominee, that uh, confirmation through the U.S. Senate in what is simply an unprecedented move. No matter how it's being misreported, uh, I was going to say reported, but no matter how it's being misreported uh, today by many in the corporate media. Uh, more on that in, in a moment in what happened today in the Senate and what it all means. Uh, also with my guest coming up today. But at the same time, Desi Doyen. Yes. Let's hope that uh, Donald Trump doesn't choose to exer- exercise the real nuclear option <laughs> oh, at this point. Oh, don't laugh. It's not <laughs> Just, funny. I'm like, don't even say it out loud. I know. Don't give him any I, well, ideas. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Uh, but th- these are amongst the concerns today, uh, if not the nuclear option uh, anytime or anywhere soon. Um, you know, the use of U.S. troops and what could very easily now become a worldwide conflagration. 
depending in no small part on how uh, on how Donald Trump moves forward at this point. Speaking to reporters aboard Air Force One today in the wake of a chemical attack in Syria earlier in the week that left some 70 dead and hundreds more injured. President Trump said on Thursday that Syrian President Bashar al-Assad may have to leave power. What happened in Syria is, quote, a disgrace to humanity, Trump said. Asked then if Assad should go, Trump, who had vociferously opposed any action by Barack Obama when it came to Syria several years ago after another chemical attack had killed hundreds in that case, Trump, when uh, asked uh, today, said, uh, well, Assad, uh, quote, he's there and I guess he's running things. So something should happen. The president would not discuss what, if anything, the United States might do in response to that uh, to that deadly chemical attack, which the U.S. is blaming on Assad. Trump said that the attack, quote, shouldn't have happened and it shouldn't be allowed to happen, unquote. Trump said he may talk to Russian President Vladimir Putin about the situation in Syria. Russia is a key supporter of the Assad government, but for their part, President Putin's uh, spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, said on Thursday that Russia's support for Syrian President Bashar Assad is not unconditional, but that the country demands a full investigation of the suspected chemical attack on a rebel-held province in Syria before the U.N., takes any action. Peskov told the Associated Press in an interview today that unconditional support is not possible in this current world, but added it is not correct to say that Moscow can convince Mr. Assad to do whatever is wanted in Moscow. Meanwhile, at the United Nations headquarters on Thursday, Security Council members there, including the United States and Russia, met behind closed doors to try to reach agreement on a resolution that would condemn the attack <clears throat> excuse me, and authorize an independent investigation of that attack. Peskov says Russia expects a full international investigation into the attack before the U.N. Security Council considers any resolution condemning the chemical attack that he describes as, quote, very tragic. Doing otherwise, said Peskov, would, quote, simply be unfair in terms of international law. Now, while the U.S. Uh, and many Western nations are blaming Assad for this chemical attack, they're just taking it as a taking it for granted that this was Assad. There has yet to be any international investigation into what happened. Russia's defense ministry charges that the uh, toxic agents were released when a Syrian airstrike hit a rebel chemical weapons arsenal and munitions factory on the town's eastern outskirts, says AP. Russia and the U.S., you'll recall, uh, had approved what was said at the time to be the removal of Syria's banned chemical weapons back in 2014. And though Secretary of State, then Secretary of State John Kerry, had asserted that all chemical weapons were removed at that time from Syria, questions have have since arisen as to whether all chemical agents had been fully removed from uh, from Assad's uh, Syria or whether uh, Assad had reconstituted his arsenal in some fashion, or whether the chemicals were actually brought in. The chemical agents were actually brought into the country by one or more of the many rebel factions and terrorists on the ground right now in Syria. 
Nonetheless, despite the, those many unanswered questions today, Trump is reportedly being briefed by his military advisors on actions that may be taken against Syria. And uh, U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, he's scheduled to be in Moscow early next week in what will be the first visit of a senior Trump administration official to Russia since Donald Trump was elected. So um, who knows where we go from here? Who knows if there will be a legitimate investigation into this before uh, Donald Trump uh, takes measures, takes military measures? Um and as I say, gets ourselves into a worldwide conflagration. Yeah, I hope uh, I hope this investigation is thorough and independent, and that the U.S. treads carefully here. You know, as a as a person with several family members who are active duty military, I would like to know that this is a very, very carefully thought out program. Whatever ends up happening. Well, when I think of Donald Trump, there's nothing more <laughs> that I think of other than uh, uh, carefully thought out programs. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, I would like to see that uh, independent investigation as well uh, before any rash moves. And uh, this is where I'm uh, glad we've got uh, James Mattis, frankly, in the uh, uh, heading up the Department of uh, Defense, uh, hopefully with uh, some sort of reasonable reaction here before we immediately go to the military reaction. But we will see. In the meantime... Uh, in much cheerier news in the really? U.S. Senate, I know, <laughs> yeah. Rep- yeah, Republicans, uh, as I mentioned, invoked the so-called nuclear option on uh, on Thursday, unilaterally rewriting that chamber's rules to allow Donald Trump's nominee to ascend to the Supreme Court in a final vote that is almost certainly going to take place on Friday along uh, largely partisan lines. Democrats were furious about both the rules change today and the fact that Republicans had failed to give Barack Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, even a hearing, much less an up or down vote for more than a year since since Justice Scalia died, leaving that vacancy way, way back in February of 2016. While Democrats uh, had enough votes to filibuster Trump's nominee, Neil Gorsuch, the subsequent unilateral rule change by Republicans to do away with the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees that had previously required 60 votes to invoke what is called cloture in order to end debate on the nominee. That ended uh, with a, a simple majority of Republicans voting to do away with the long Senate tradition of allowing filibusters for uh, for uh, Supreme Court justices. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York said we will sadly point to today as a turning point in the history of the Senate and the Supreme Court. I would agree. Uh, here was Majority Leader uh, Republican Mitch McConnell before a series of procedural votes today to kill the filibuster. And here he is. And I'm sorry. I need to say this uh, because the corporate media is not, but McConnell has been blatantly lying, just lying about what Republicans did last year when they refused to meet, much less hold a vote on uh, Obama's Supreme Court nominee, uh, Merrick Garland. Uh, you know, and here here's uh, McConnell again claiming, hey, we never filibustered Obama's Supreme Court nominees. What the Democrats are doing here is outrageous. This, I will say in advance and again afterwards, is a blatant lie. So, Mr. President, how do we treat President Obama's Supreme Court nominees? 
Did we try to filibuster them? Yes. Like our Democratic colleagues tried with Justice Alito? Of course not. When President Obama nominated Sonia Sotomayor mm -hmm. and Elena Kagan, we treated each nominee fairly, uh -huh. as they would later say themselves. Any other nominees you treated fairly? And we secured an up or down vote for both. Most Republicans both? had significant, significant misgivings about these nominees. Many of us voted no in the confirmation. But we didn't think it would be right to deny them an up or down vote. <laughs> I mean, really? We only thought it would be right to deny Merrick Garland an up or down vote for some reason not specified and not mentioned by the liar Mitch McConnell. He went on to say that uh, this is the latest. Uh, this is an amazing quote. This is the latest escalation in the left's never ending judicial war. The most audacious yet, and it cannot and will not stand. Really? The left's never-ending judicial war? Uh, you know, it, it's just unbelievable. And this is why it drives me crazy when I see, you know, the corporate media, you know, not putting out right out front that this is a stolen seat and that Mitch McConnell is blatantly lying. Chuck Schumer the uh, minority leader for the for the Democrats responding to McConnell and uh, and Republicans record of filibustering Obama nominees one after another after another in a record fashion. Uh, that's what uh, Schumer is referring to here in this uh, clip with his comment about cloture votes, uh, the votes on the Senate floor to end end debate, to end filibuster. It, that had required 60 votes for Supreme nom uh, Supreme Court nominations nominees until today. Now, Schumer is referencing here also uh, when Democrats were in the majority and back in 2013 themselves, they also ended up using the nuclear option for the filibuster for non-Supreme Court nominations, but only after many, many months, uh, years, in fact, of the uh, uh, then-Republican minority blocking appointments to both the federal courts around the country and to uh, presidential, uh, presidential appointments to federal agencies. Here's Chuck Schumer. We believe we had to change the rules in 2013 because the Republicans ramped up the use of the filibuster to historic proportions, forcing more cloture votes under President Obama than during all other presidents combined. More cloture votes under Obama than on, under George Washington all the way through George Bush. My Republican friends think they have cause to change the rules because we're about to deny cloture to the nomination of Judge Gorsuch. We believe that what Republicans did to Merrick Garland was worse than a filibuster, declaring mere hours after Justice Scalia's death that they would deny the constitutional prerogative of a president with 11 months left in his term. And as my colleague from Illinois noted, we did not hear two words in the long speech of Senator McConnell, Merrick Garland. Senator Jeff Merkley, Democrat from Oregon, was the first uh, Democrat out of the gate after the uh, after the nomination of Neil Gorsuch, uh, Donald Trump's nominee uh, for the Supreme Court. Uh, he was the first one to say that he would, in fact, filibuster Gorsuch. 
because he considered the seat to be a stolen seat. That after uh, Republicans refused to even give a hearing to Garland. Merkley uh, spoke just uh, prior today, just prior to Republicans' invocation of the nuclear option to kill all filibusters for Supreme Court nominations. This was at a rally where uh, where Senator Merkley of Oregon took questions from reporters and explained how he saw what had happened back in 2013 and why Democrats back then, at the time, had decided to trigger the nuclear option for non-Supreme Court judges and for regular presidential appointees, ambassadors and you know presidential appointees to federal agencies, secretaries and deputy secretaries and so forth. Um, this was uh, done, as Merkley notes, after Republicans had filibustered one after another after another in order to retain... Uh, the vacancy on the uh, back then, I think it was a three vacancies on the important D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, as well as federal district and appeals courts all over the country that Republicans were filibustering for no reason whatsoever, other than the fact uh, that Donald, uh, I'm sorry, that Barack Obama was the one who made the appointments. Uh, and then Democrats finally blew up the filibuster for those uh, for those positions. Here's Senator Merkley today. What happened was that the advice and consent tool was used by the Republican team as a tool to inflict damage on President Obama because he was of a different party and on the judiciary. And they did so repeatedly over several years and intensified it where we couldn't get a labor secretary. We couldn't get people on the National Labor Relations Board. We couldn't get a vote on key judges. And we negotiated. We pushed. We even had a session in the old Senate chamber where everyone bared their souls. And the Republicans said, we know we're misbehaving. We know we're destroying the institution. Okay, we'll stop. And then a month later, they said there are three seats on the D.C. Circuit Court, and we're not going to let President Obama have a debate over anyone he appoints, no matter what their background. And that was the first echo, if you will, of the steal the seat strategy. And that's what forced us to have to change the rule on, the, on all nominations except the Supreme Court. It's so important to leave the supermajority in place for the Supreme Court. Other levels make decisions, but they get bumped up to the Supreme Court. That's where the buck stops. You want to have bipartisan buy-in, and that's why we left that rule in place. But we did the right thing uh, in 2013. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's Congressman, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Senator Jeff Merkley, a Democrat from Oregon, uh, standing by the decision both in 2013 uh, to do away with the filibuster for certain, uh, certain judgeships back when uh, Democrats were in control, and standing by the decision today to uh, try uh, to filibuster Merrick Garland, I'm sorry, Mer uh, Neil Gorsuch. Uh, and try to rectify the situation in which the Republicans stole the Supreme Court seat. Thank you for saying so. Uh, AP reports that uh, the Senate maneuvering today played out in an atmosphere of tension with much hand-wringing from all sides about the future of the Senate, as well as unusually bitter accusations and counter-accusations as each side blamed the other. The rules change, after all, is known as the nuclear option because of its far-reaching implications, much farther than, uh, frankly, I believe corporate media have been explaining to the American people up till now. 
AP's Eric Warner, uh, Erica Warner notes that emotions were running high ahead of the votes with raised voices on the floor where proceedings are normally sedate. All involved were keenly aware of the long-term implications of the proceedings. Yeah, but is the country? Some of them uh, hard to predict uh, for the future of Trump's presidency and the 2018 midterm election, says AP, when Republicans will be defending their slim 52-48 Senate majority and 10 vulnerable Democrats in states uh, Trump won will be up for election. So it's going to be very difficult, even with the outrage, if any if any exists over what happened today, it's still going to be very difficult for Democrats to uh, take back the majority in the Senate. Not just take back the majority, but not lose what they already have. Indeed. Senators on both sides of the aisle today lamented the trajectory they were on, though they themselves were in a position to prevent it from happening and failed to do so. I should say that Republicans, uh, AP, Republicans were were in a position to prevent it from happening. They failed to do so. Here was John McCain earlier this week lamenting the trajectory that the Senate was on, even though he himself and a full 51 of his Republican colleagues in the Senate were in the position. It would have only taken three of them were in the position to actually uh, keep it from happening. Are you comfortable that these rules, this precedent will be broken and forevermore, then it will just require a 51 percent majority instead of 60, as had been the case. I think it was a dark day in the history of the United States Senate. It's going to happen. And uh, it's interesting that Republicans were dead set against it when my former colleague Harry Reid invoked it. But now uh, it seems to be uh, OK. So uh, it seems to be okay. John McCain is very, very sad about it. Uh, Nonetheless, John McCain voted today with McConnell and the uh, Republican majority on the rules changes, uh, saying that he felt he had no choice. The uh, the final vote for Neil Gorsuch is now set for Friday. Uh, He will likely be confirmed uh, for what I, I have said many times. I guess I have to keep saying it. I regard as a stolen Supreme Court seat. Uh, He will likely get 55 votes in the Senate. That's 52 Republicans, along with three conservative Democrats from states that Trump won uh, last November. Uh, Those three Democrats who uh, voted along with the Republicans today, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Heidi Heidkamp of North Dakota, Joe Donnelly of Indiana. They have all said that they would vote for uh, for Gorsuch in the final vote, a fourth Senate Democrat, Michael Bennett from uh, Gorsuch's home state of Colorado, uh, did not uh, join in the filibuster with the Democrats, or at least the attempted filibuster today by Democrats. But uh, Bennett has announced today that he will vote against Gorsuch's confirmation. So what does all this mean? And uh, what, if any, are these uh, long and and short uh, reaching uh, implications of of what has happened today? Where does this go from here? Uh, And and, you know, are we going to just see, uh, you know, nominees farther and farther to the right or are I guess you could argue farther and farther to the left? If we ever see a Democratic president again with a Democratic uh, a Democratic U.S. Senate majority, where does all of this go? And is this as bad as I think it is? 
even while uh, much of the media was, you know, distracted by world events today. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back with someone who wrote the book on the U.S. Supreme Court to get a sense of what all of this means for the court, for the U.S. Senate, and frankly, for the U.S. itself. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Madam President, parliamentary inquiry. The Democratic leader will state parliamentary inquiry. Is it correct that over half the nominations on which cloture motions were filed in the Senate over the course of our entire history as a country were filed between the beginning of President Obama's administration and November 21st, 2013? The Secretary of the Senate's office confirms that 79 of the 147 cloture motions filed on nominations were filed between 2009 and November 1st, 2013. Madam President, further parliamentary inquiry. The Democratic leader will state the parliamentary inquiry. Under the rules and precedents of the Senate, is the Senate prohibited from considering and voting on a nominee to the Supreme Court in the fourth year of the president's term. The chair is not aware of any such prohibition in its rules or precedents. That was Senator uh, Chuck Schumer of New York, Senate Democratic Minority Leader, uh, during the uh, series of votes taken today that resulted in the uh, in the Republicans uh, nuking the Senate, actually nuking the filibuster in the U.S. Senate for Supreme Court nominees. And clearing the way for Neil Gorsuch, Donald Trump's nominee, to be uh, the the fifth uh, Republican appointment on that court, despite the fact that the seat sat vacant for the past year when Republicans refused to even entertain the idea, even held hearings, much less an up or down vote for Barack Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland. This is the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Joining us now to talk about this entire fine mess is Ian Milheiser, our old friend. He's a constitutional law expert and editor of Think Progress Justice. His writings have appeared in The New York Times, L.A. Times, U.S. News World Report, Slate, Guardian, everywhere else. Uh, and uh, he is the author of the book Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. Uh, Ian Milheiser, uh, welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks for joining us on what I suspect is a very busy day over there for you. Yeah, no, it's going to be a busy day of working and then some heavy drinking. Yeah, yes, I think that sounds like a good idea for everyone. 
Uh, well, they, they have done it, Ian. It now takes nothing more than a majority vote to confirm someone to a lifetime appointment on the highest court in the land. Uh, given the hand-wringing, let me start here. Given the hand-wringing about all of this over the past few days from some Republicans in the Senate, like Lindsey Graham, John McCain, and so forth, are you surprised at all that there was not even uh, there was not more of an effort from any of them to try to avoid this today? I mean, there were zero votes from Republicans to avoid killing the filibuster for SCOTUS nominees. Uh, zero votes, even even zero votes when Democratic leader Chuck Schumer tried to delay the decision for just a few hours with an, an adjournment until 5 p.m. today to talk about it. Was was any of that a surprise to you at this point? I'm not the least bit surprised. I mean, look, these guys, they held a Supreme Court seat open for a year in the hopes that Donald Trump would get to fill it. Um, you know, and for that matter, a big reason why these guys, even though I think most of them know that Donald Trump was not someone who belonged in the White House, a big reason why they backed him regardless is because they knew that the Supreme Court was on the line and they were willing to turn the nation over to Trump if they got to fill the seat. And now they got their, that they're part of the deal. So, you know, I kind of feel like after you make the deal with the devil, that leads to you supporting putting Trump in the White House, going one step further and saying, oh, and we're, you know, we're also going to change the rules of the Senate. Like, that's not too heavy of a lift all of a sudden. And just to make sure that uh, we're on a similar page here, I have not been covering... Uh, Gorsuch's uh, hearings, uh, the, the, his qualifications and his record much at all, because I regard this as a stolen Supreme Court seat, period. Uh, I didn't care what his record was, how good or bad it was, because to me, this seat was stolen. Do you regard it in a, in a similar fashion, or is this, hey, they just, they just use the rules to their advantage here? Yeah, well, I mean, this is, it's, uh, it's absolutely a stolen seat. I mean, this is the Merrick Garland seat. But no matter, like, what the circumstances of this nomination are, Neil Gorsuch is not someone who belongs on the Supreme Court. I mean, he's one of the most conservative judges probably on the entire federal judiciary. Um, he is probably to the right, he's almost certainly to the right of Scalia. He may be almost as far to the right as Thomas, who's the most conservative member of the Supreme Court. You know, he voted against women who need birth control in Hobby Lobby. He tried to defund Planned Parenthood. He has a pretty sophisticated and aggressive plan that could lead to the dismantling of agencies like the EPA and their ability to, to, to regulate effectively. Um, you know, this, this is a really conservative guy. In the middle of his hearing, um, there was a unanimous decision um, overruling his attempt to gut a law that protects disabled children. Um, so he's not someone that we want on the Supreme Court. And I think, like, you know, you don't have to even know much about the recent past to look at this guy in the present and say, you know, he should not have been confirmed. But uh, with all of that true, Ian Milheiser, uh, did the Democrats make a mistake even looking at that record, even making the argument that uh, he should not be seated because of his qualifications? In other words, should they have responded uh, you know, if not exactly the same way, uh, you know, by not giving him a, a hearing or meeting, but rather give him a hearing, but say, hey, I just want to let you know in advance, Judge Gorsuch, I am going to vote against you. Nothing against you. You're a fine fellow. But this is a stolen seat. 
uh, and, uh, you know, th- therefore these proceedings are illegitimate. Did the Democrats make a mistake here by, uh, you know, trying to make what is essentially the same old argument that, hey, uh, right. you're too, too, you know, too far to the right uh, for our tastes? Well, you know, I mean, I've been through... I've been through a fair amount of confirmation fights, and mm-hmm. my experience has been that process arguments don't convince too many people. I mean, I think it's horrible the way that Merrick Garland was treated, but like people are moved by an explanation of that you know, that that hinges on what the guy's going to do if they're if they're confirmed. And in this case, I think that you know there are, at least early on, I think there are a lot of Democrats. That were that didn't want this fight and may have been inclined to vote for him. And what moved them was they started digging into his record. And also, I, I think he was a little obnoxious at his hearing. They didn't like that either. Um, but you know, things like that decision dealing with disabled children, things mm-hmm. like his record dealing with Planned Parenthood. I, I think that when they started digging to the record, the record, they said, you know, my God, like. This is, you know, this version could be another Thomas. This isn't someone who should have his hands on our Constitution. Uh, so you think it was his record, not the pressure from the people? Because I know there was a lot, a lot of people calling. Uh, but you think ultimately the reason Democrats voted against him was simply due to his uh, due to his record, not the process argument, not the political argument here. Well, I think there were there were a lot of things that played into it, and certainly the fact that a lot of people put pressure on them for whatever reason, you know, helped bring mm-hmm. it, bring Democrats along. Uh, I mean, that I think has been much, you know, and this is a very positive story about about the um, the period since the election. Is initially, I think you had a lot of Democrats in Congress who wanted to try to be able to work with Trump if they could, and they wanted to put on the sort of beltway reasonableness that, you know, they instinctually tend towards. And it was the angry people at town halls and the rush of phone calls that made them realize that that was not an acceptable option. And because they've behaved that way, you know, we have a president whose approval rating is somewhere in the neighborhood of 35. Um, There was a poll that came down the other day that showed a generic congressional ballot uh, Democrats have a bigger advantage than any party, any out party has ever had in the generic ballot this far from an election. Um, so, I mean, they, they you know, the, the pressure has worked, and it's a good thing. Um, and I'm not going to tell people why they should, why they should apply pressure. Um, you, know, you know, my point regarding Gorsuch is simply that, you know, set aside the circumstances, I can think of no set of circumstances where this guy needs to be on the court. You uh, also make a great point today in your piece uh, at uh, Think Progress Justice that uh, while just 44 senators, Democratic senators in this case, oppose Gorsuch's nomination, that actually represents well over half the nation. Explain why that is, Ian. Yeah, I mean, because the Senate is malapportioned. I I mean, I'm, I'm actually somewhat ambivalent about the filibuster being nuked because while, while Gorsuch is terrible, um, the filibuster has typically mm-hmm. um, been a very anti-democratic thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's made it very hard to govern. The irony is that that's not what happened in this case. In this case, you know, we, the, the Senate, it, it's amazing that this thing still exists. We, we, have a, a, we have a legislative body where 
there are the, there are the same number of senators from Wyoming as there are from California, even though there's 67 times as many people in California. And you know, I, I just you know, I, I I know some people from Wyoming. They seem like nice people, but I don't think that they are 67 times more worthy than the people I know from California. <laughs> um, and so you have the situation where because of the malapportionment. You know, if, if, if the Senate was a, was a, was apportioned according to population, uh, Democrats would have a pretty solid majority. The block of Democrats who voted against Gorsuch make up more than fifty three percent of, uh, or they represent more than fifty three percent of the nation. So the only reason this guy is going to be on the Supreme Court is because a president who lost the popular vote by nearly three million votes nominated him, and a group of senators who represent a minority of the country. Yeah. Are going to vote to confirm them, which that that bears repeating. Uh, a president who did not receive a majority received a minority of the votes of the American people. A Senate uh, which received a minority of the vote uh, uh, compared to the uh, the Democrats who are voting against this guy. This is going to uh, approve a Supreme Court nominee for a majority that will hold sway for a generation in this country. I think this is a lot bigger deal than, frankly, it's being regarded right now in the media. Maybe that's understandable with so much else going on at the same time. But, Ian, does this has something gone terribly wrong with American democracy when we're looking at it at this point? Or is this, by design, part of the Constitution? Well, well, I mean, I guess the answer is yes and yes. Yeah, I was going to say, or I mean, both. Yeah, I guess both. Right, right, or both. I, I mean, like, you know, the Electoral College is, is in the Constitution. It's also something horrible and, and anti-democratic. You know, the structure of the Senate is, is in the Constitution. It's also horrible and democratic. I, I mean, most modern democracies are not structured this way. You know, most de- de- modern democracies have parliamentary governments where you have... You know, sometimes you have bicameralism, but often the, the upper house is very weak. So you have, like, you know, if you look at if you look at Canada, for for example, you have um, you know you have Parliament, the House of Parliament that really matters is elected. Um, they pick the prime minister. The prime, you, know, you know, the prime mm-hmm. minister generally governs with the the will of the. the of um, a, you know, if not a majority, at least a majority coalition behind them, um, and that's not what you have in the United States. You know what you what you have in in the United States is this crazy system where the guy who lost by three million votes gets to pick a justice, and then they're confirmed by a Senate that doesn't represent by a block of senators that doesn't represent a majority of the country. Both Republicans and Democrats had very different opinions about the use of the so-called nuclear option just four years ago, back in 2013, when Democrats held the majority. And it was then Democratic Majority Leader Harry Reid who used the nuclear option on 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 both uh, presidential appointees and upon uh, uh, for non-Supreme Court justices at the time. uh, For example, John Cornyn of Texas, uh, who was, I think, the first one to speak today after they after they nuked the filibuster. He said back then in 2013, the Democrats will do anything to take the attention off the failure that is Obamacare, even if it means breaking the rules of the Senate in a raw exercise of partisan political power. He was talking about Reid's intention to 
to uh, do away with the filibuster. Ted Cruz, also of Texas, said at the time, in yet another partisan abuse of power, the Democrats are now shamelessly working to pack the D.C. circuit so that President Obama's lawless disregard of our statutes and Constitution will not be held to account by an impartial judiciary. Well, now they seem to be doing the same thing, the Republicans do. But uh, how much are Democrats to blame here for this, Ian, for what they did do back in 2013 when they when they did away with the filibuster in several circumstances? How are the, yeah, how I mean, are the circumstances the different? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Like, every time control of the White House changes hands, there's a ritual exchange of talking points and... You know, the, the, the party that, that used to control the White House hands over the talking point saying that obstruction is the worst thing that has ever happened, and the party that now controls the White House receives the talking, or, 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 or that, that's losing control of the White mm-hmm. House, you know, gets the new talking point saying that obstructionism is, is the greatest thing ever. And, like, you know, that, that's just a thing that happens. I mean, what, what was different in 2013 um, is that. Democrats waited for almost all of Obama's presidency before they did anything about the filibuster. You know, more than half of the filibusters that have happened in the Senate's history were led by Mitch McConnell against Barack Obama. Um, So there was, I think, outrage piled on outrage. And finally, um, Reid and the Senate Republicans said enough is enough. Um, and, and, and they nuked the and, and they and they they nuked the filibuster at least partially. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is now the first thing that Democrats have done in the Trump administration to stand up, and McConnell immediately decides to pull to pull the trigger again. So you know, you can make a distinction there, but honestly, like you know, looking back at the Obama years, I think the mistake that Reid made wasn't that he nuked the filibuster. The mistake that he made was that he didn't do it sooner. Mm. Um. You know, we know what the Republicans are going to do when they're in charge, and I think the only smart thing that Democrats can do is match force with equal force. Uh, well, uh, but but what do they do now at this point? There is no equal force. They're in the minority. I mean, the equal force, I guess, would be if and when they ever retake the majority, you know, essentially doing away with the filibuster for uh, for legislation, which is the only place where the, 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 you know, the filibuster is now still allowed in the U.S. Senate. Should that be done away with as well, Ian Milheiser? And, and will it be done away with at this point by Republicans who control all branches of government right. at this point? Why, why keep the filibuster around at this point? Right. I mean, I think it's actually fairly unlikely that the legislative filibuster is going to go away anytime soon. And the reason why is because Mitch McConnell is smart enough to be afraid of the House. Um, I mean, you've got, you've got a lot of kooky stuff being passed by the House that, if it becomes law, is going to make it really hard for Republicans to win elections in the future because people aren't going to be happy with, 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 with the ideas coming out of Paul Ryan's house. And I think that McConnell knows that. I think that he actually, you know, I think that he would prefer to keep the legislative filibuster in place because um, he doesn't want it, he doesn't want to have that stuff pass and it tanks his chances of getting reelected and he doesn't want to have it fail and he takes the blame for it with his base. Um, So for the meantime, I think it's likely that the legislative filibuster is safe. Over the long haul, though, like one way or another, now that the nuclear option has been invoked twice, I think that 
eventually something's going to come up that whatever party's in charge cares about enough and it's going to get new. Last question uh, for you here, Ian Milheiser. The, um, will, this, uh, will this have been worth it for the Republicans? And I ask that because I think it's, a, it's likely that at least one more justice, you know, you and I talked before the election right. that there could be as many as three or four uh, under whatever the next presidency was going to be. Uh, three or four vacancies on the Supreme Court. So it's likely that at least one more justice is going to leave the bench during this Republican presidency. It's likely to be Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And the Republicans could have had their majority back in a way that would at least have been seen as somewhat more legitimate. So are are they going to end up paying a worse price here? Uh, Will this have been worth it for them ultimately, as, as you see it, Ian? Well, I mean, here's what I think they expect to get out of this. Like, there's a major challenge to gerrymandering coming up next term. There are a bunch of voter suppression laws that make it a lot easier for Republicans to win elections. They're going to come in front of the Supreme Court before the next election. And, I mean, I don't think that it is impossible for Democrats to win a, to win a national election, but it's going to be a lot harder for them to do so because Neil Gorsuch is on the Supreme Court. And so I think the reason why Republicans felt that this was worth it, and, you know, they may be proven right, is because it allows them to, you know, it allows state lawmakers to get away with the laws that they've been, that, that they've been passing to try to skew elections towards the GOP. And with Gorsuch on the court, that's the fifth vote to ensure that nothing is likely to be done to stop it. This is a dark day indeed. Ian Milheiser, uh, darker than... Let me ask you one more. Will will the public and the media uh, soon forget about this, even if uh, legislators don't? Uh, I mean, is this just going to go away, or will there be any kind of accountability from from the public or the media as you see it? Well, I mean, sadly, like, we're not going to be able to forget about it because Gorsuch is probably going to be on the court for the next 30 years. Um, so I don't think that, that this is something that, that, that we're going to be able to forget about. Now, whether there's going to be accountability, I, I mean, look, like, people need to turn out to vote. You know, if, if, and if, you know, if you're happy with the government we have, by all means, turn out and vote for them. But if you are not happy, then that's the only way this thing is going to get fixed. And... If you're not happy with the government that we have, that we have, like I said, it is especially important to turn out because now, um, you know, it's not just enough to win. You have to win outside the margin of voter suppression. Ian Milheiser is a constitutional law expert and editor of Think Progress Justice. He is the author of the book Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. I'm afraid the, uh, the comfortable are going to be uh, much comforted in the coming years. Ian, uh, really appreciate you uh, joining us here today on, uh, as I say, what is a very dark day. All right, thanks so much. Thank you, Ian. Okay, a quick break. We'll come back with uh, something. I'll try to find something brighter. I can't leave people in this. I can't leave me in this condition. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't go away.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, Desi Doyen, it is a dark day, isn't it? It most certainly uh, is. You can only uh, make so much out of a day like... I I know. And I just wanted to note that I had been watching the proceedings on the Senate floor from the beginning this morning. And, you know, Schumer, when he was talking, Senate Minority Leader Mm -hmm. Chuck Schumer, several times tried to put up different procedural votes to just delay this. He tried to postpone the entire thing until April after their recess. But the Republicans refused. He thought that we could have some time to negotiate. He also tried to adjourn for just like three hours. hours. Yeah, till 5 p.m. today to try to talk about this. They were having none of it. Absolutely refused. And it's, I think, very suspicious that they want to move so quickly, you know, when we have a president and an administration administration under FBI investigation. And it just it just reminded me of what I have learned about authoritarian regimes and especially about, you know, Germany in the 1930s. Hitler moved very quickly and he couldn't move without the help of his legislature helping him to move very quickly on changing all of these institutional norms and all of these protections for the civilians. So it just, it, it, to me, it's very disturbing that, uh, that the Republicans are helping to move this so quickly when they absolutely do not have to. You had to play the Hitler card, didn't you? Sorry. Yeah, it just right. made me think no, of that. I hear you. I know. So, I hear you. Anyway. Uh, anyway, uh, in my uh, promised search for something, something brighter today, uh, I, I don't know if this meets uh, fits the bill or not, but I'll, I'll give it a try. Fifty five percent of Americans now support the Affordable Care Act. That is the first time that the Affordable Care Act has uh, received majority approval in this poll. This is a Gallup poll. And uh, this is a major turnaround from just five months ago when only 52 percent approved and 53% had disapproved. So this is the first time 55% of Americans now support the Affordable Care Act. Now, that's not good news because I'm in love with the Affordable Care Act. That's good news because Americans seem to be finally understanding what the Affordable Care Act does and doesn't. Uh, Also known as Obamacare, by the way, in case you don't recognize the name Affordable Care Act. Uh, But this is the first time that uh, the majority of Americans have approved of that law since uh, since Gallup started asking about uh, about the law in this particular format way back in November of 2012. The new findings come after Republicans had uh, after their plan to try to repeal and replace the health care law fell apart last month dramatically uh, as House leaders replacement bill ran into stiff opposition from within their own party. Republicans, Democrats and independents are all now more likely, according to this poll, all more more likely to approve of Obamacare now than they were in just November, a few days after Trump's uh, victory in the presidential election 
after that left Republicans in control of the legislative and executive branches, and I guess just about now uh, the judiciary branch as well, the judicial branch as well with the Supreme Court. Uh, Independents have led the way in this shift towards approval of Obamacare, increasing by 17 points, 17 percentage points, uh, compared with uh, 10-point changes for Republicans and Democrats alike since just last November. Right now, 55 approve. Uh, that's up from 42 right after the election. 40% want to keep the law but make significant changes to it, and 26% want to keep the law as it is. So if you put those numbers together in that way, you've got now 66% approval for this law in some order. They might want to see some changes, but otherwise they approve of it. That at least will make it harder for, I think, for Republicans to take it away from Americans and and uh, take away the health care coverage for 24 what was it 24 million Americans yeah and uh, in their in their last uh, attempt to repeal and replace now, uh, a few weeks ago yeah now this brings up two things to me first of all that old song you don't know what you got until it's gone mm. so maybe people were finally reacting when they finally understood oh wait this is going to hurt me. And I, I'm going to take it personally now. So, you know, often it's hard to get some Americans to consider the impact on their fellow Americans. They only seem to care when it's going to affect them personally. So, hey, at least we're to that point. Um, but also, I think it brings up what Frank Luntz, the GOP pollster and uh, word language guru that the Republicans like to use, he says you have to keep saying things over and over and over and over again. And until you're about sick of saying them, that's when the public is finally hearing about it for the first oh, time. Oh, I'm totally sick of I know. I'm and, totally and, sick of explaining uh, that law and what it does and doesn't do. Right. And finally, people are understanding <clears throat> that, oh, it affects them and, oh, it actually does good things, things that they actually like. So unfortunately, the media's amnesia hasn't been very helpful in all of this, but that's where we are. Uh, Gallup points out that if this current majority holds, it's going to be uh, that they see this as a significant development and that uh, politically it will, it will create a major obstacle to Trump and Congress uh, and their ongoing efforts to change or replace the law, they say in future elections it could turn the GOP's opposition to the law from an asset into a liability. And <clears throat> it appears that uh, that some Republicans at least are beginning to notice that uh, after they've been spending the past, what, seven years now talking about getting rid of Obamacare root and branch, repealing, quote, every word of the health care reform law. Now, uh, now that Republicans control all the chambers, uh, both chambers of Congress and the White House, um, they're having a really difficult time getting rid of this law, changing it and even getting people and get, getting their own caucus to agree to it. And now all of a sudden you're finding guys like Congressman Patrick McHenry, Republican from North Carolina. He's the chief deputy majority whip in the U.S. House. He told reporters this week that a new proposal that would weaken protections for people with pre-existing conditions is, quote, a bridge too far for our members. Yes, they're still trying to find a new bill to replace Obamacare. Something a little more cruel. Yeah, to, to try to get the uh, conservatives. Well, now McHenry uh, cites his own past medical history and that of his family <laughs> to argue against the weakening of uh, certain Obamacare uh, provisions 
uh, one of which he calls a really, well, many of which he called really important protections. So now they're realizing that Obamacare put in these, uh, never mind the, 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 the premium subsidies and all of that, it put in rules and regulations for private insurers that were able to do anything they wanted, essentially, and basically dump anybody they wanted. Or charge for, as much as they wanted. Pre-existing conditions, yeah. Um, dump you on pretext, <clears throat> which happened to many, many people. Yep. Uh, so now uh, McHenry is realizing, well, some of these things are really important. We, we shouldn't just get rid of these uh, things that Obama, the, the Obamacare's essential health benefits that were put in place to keep these uh, companies from being able to, you know, to not cover things like maternity care, prescription drugs, mental health, addiction treatment, uh, emergency room, uh, hospital stays and so forth. McHenry said, quote, I was once in the individual market for a period of time in my 20s and my family's medical history is really bad, he said. So my understanding of the impact of insurance regulations is real. I believe I'm a conservative, but I remember the really bad practices in the insurance marketplace prior to the ACA passing. So. Here he is actually lauding the Affordable Care Act. No, not calling for it to be pulled out root and branch, not saying to get rid of every word, but saying, uh, yeah, you know what? There's some important things that Obamacare did. Nice to hear him say that. Nice to hear them say that. Yeah. Uh, of course, after all of these years, basically lying about the law so that they could get to the place where they are right now where they control every branch of government, every chamber of commerce, uh, of, of uh, well, every chamber of commerce, that's for sure, <laughs> every uh, chamber of Congress, the White House, and now the Supreme Court. Good work. My thanks to our producer today, as ever, Desi Doyen. Thank you for slogging through all of that Supreme Court uh, yeah. and U.S. Senate audio today. To my guest, Ian Milheiser of thinkprogress.org, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it for free, as you can anytime, any of our shows at bradblog.com or at your favorite, uh, favorite podcast uh, download site. We appreciate if you uh, put in a good word for us, a nice comment, a nice review, wherever you get it from. That helps other people find it as well. My thanks to those of you who help us continue to do what we do every day here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you very much for that. And you can drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. If you prefer Facebook and Twitter, you can find us, follow us, and share us there. I am simply the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 